This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Manit Ahuja began her career at age 17 as a credit risk analyst at Citigroup. Now, 10 years later, she's been named to the Forbes 2012 30 Under 30 list, is a producer for CNBC's Squawk Box, and has written a new book called The Alpha Masters, Unlocking the Genius of the World's Top Hedge Funds. Knowledge at Wharton recently talked with her about the Alpha Masters she profiled in her book and about where she thinks the hedge fund industry is headed. Hello, I'm Jeff Brown with Knowledge at Wharton. Today we're with Manit Ahuja, uh, who is a producer for CNBC and, more importantly, author of a new book called uh, The Alpha Masters, Unlocking the Genius of the World's Top Hedge Funds. So welcome to Wharton. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little what brings you here today. Well, I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship from the South Asian Journalism Association to attend uh, Wharton's seminar for business journalists. So I've been here for the past couple days, and it's been great. And it's been a nice fall for you uh, for this visit. Now, uh, it's a wonderful book. Uh, I can tell people it's very readable. It's uh, profiles of uh, 11 hedge fund managers at nine funds and uh, explores case histories of some of the, uh, some of the big trades they've made. Some win, some lose. And uh, it gives a good sense of how this industry operates and the kind of people who, who run it. And you're quite young, we can say, uh, and got into the industry very young. Can you tell us about that? Well, sure. I started uh, on Wall Street at Citigroup as an intern when I was 17 years old. Uh, it was just supposed to be a semester-long internship. If you go to school in the city, they actually they have year-round uh, positions for folks like myself. Uh, after 10 months, the lady I was working for decided not to come back after maternity leave, and that opened up an opportunity because I was able to juggle the work with school, and I found it really uh, interesting and fascinating. And in addition to CNBC, you've worked for the Wall Street Journal at, at one point, uh, so it's quite a varied background for somebody still in her 20s. Oh, well, thank you. And, uh, and now a book under your belt. So what brought you to this book? What was the, what was the reason for doing this? Well, I was fascinated by one of the first individuals that I met in the hedge fund industry, David Einhorn, right in 2007 and early 2008, as the financial crisis was starting to pick up. I was fortunate enough to cover David Einhorn during the whole Lehman Brothers analysis that he put out there at the Irisone Conference and the Value Investing Congress. And as I spent more time with these hedge fund managers, analyzing them, I noticed that there were a small group of money managers that had profound impacts on the market. If you think about everyone that works on Wall Street, that runs a mutual fund, that runs a hedge fund, that runs a private equity shop, there are very few people that when they change a stock position, the market moves. So I wanted to dig deeper and see who these people really were and what their analysis was really all about. And I think a lot of us have seen, you know, these these multi-billion-dollar trades that are that are big enough to just move markets and certainly right. draw a lot of attention uh, when they're made. When we find out about them, which is not all the time, it's something of a secretive industry. They don't tip their hand 
for the most part. Correct. Now, uh, let's uh, not assume that everybody watching today is uh, familiar with hedge funds. So we just want to run through a couple of the basics on what, in your mind, uh, distinguishes a hedge fund from a private equity fund, a mutual fund, from the other kinds of things we're accustomed to. What are the key features of a hedge fund? Well, a f hedge fund, you should think about a hedge fund like a startup uh, enterprise company or a startup tech tech shop. They usually start out with just a handful of very successful money managers that spent a lot of time on Wall Street, made a lot of money for their prior employers, and are ready to go out on their own. They're private investment companies, so you have to be a qualified investor, uh, according to the SEC, to be able to invest with them. And they're very secretive, partially because they're minding their own business running their own portfolio, but also because the SEC requires that they not market to the public because their strategies are typically riskier and you need a minimum of about $10 million on average to be able to invest with one. Now, we've heard more in the news recently about private equity funds, which are basically funds that, uh, for the most part, buy companies. They've mm -hmm. developed portfolios of companies and try to make them better. Hedge funds are more likely to be investing in securities, stocks, bonds, derivatives, that sort of thing. Correct. Is that correct? Right. Now, in your title, you talk about alpha. Uh, what is alpha? Well, alpha can mean just the mathematical sense just means excess return over the market benchmark. But I wanted to actually take it a step further and look at these alpha personalities in addition to these alpha masters in the hedge fund industry that were moving the market. So I looked for people that had a long history of outperforming uh, the S&P and, and how they did that. So in layman's terms, if you had the S&P 500 returning 10% in a, in a decent year, right. alpha would be some return on top of that that's, right. that they require uh, to make this worthwhile. And it's not every year, too. That's one thing that I noticed, that it's, it's a general trend, but there are some years where they do underperform. I have noticed that the majority of the managers in the book may have had one or two down years or were minorly under the S&P, but then came back in a really big way and sometimes over 63% over the S&P. But if you couldn't beat the market on average, there'd be no point in doing it. You'd just buy right. an S&P 500 fund and forget and about be it. An and index go play fund. golf. Yeah. Right. And then there's a term beta, which we see in here as well. Uh, you mentioned a number of times in the book. What is that about? Beta is just the actual market return. So you're always trying to deliver alpha versus beta. So there is a big debate going on in the hedge fund industry now about what is actually alpha and what is beta. Some say that a lot of these hedge fund managers are just delivering beta, yet charging exorbitant fees, 2 and 20, and, uh, and, and it's not making sense for investors. So that's a part of the discussion right now. And that fee structure is 2% of assets under management and 20% of profits. Correct. Right? Okay. And so, so the idea is to beat the market and do it with a minimum amount of risk or volatility while you're doing it. That's that's the basic idea, which sounds very simple, right? but it's quite hard to do. In actuality, it's a yeah. bit tougher. Now, one, one of your chapters talks about uh, Paulson and company. Uh, John Paulson is, is one of the most well-known hedge fund managers, especially because he managed to make $15 billion in 2007 when everyone else was losing their shirts. And right. I wonder if you could sort of take us through that chapter and describe what it was he did as an example of how a hedge fund operates. 
Well, I would say that there is no one example of how a hedge fund is supposed to operate. It was interesting to go through uh, the 11 different personalities in the book. They all had some similarities, but were all incredibly different. I found what I found to be inspiring about Paulson's story, uh, at least in the beginning, is that he didn't start his hedge fund until he was, uh, you know, looking at 40. He got passed up for promotions. He was a good merger arbitrage analyst and was doing fairly decent, but he was running a pretty small fund until around 2006, 2007, where he was able to identify this trade with a handful of employees that worked for him at Paulson & Co. And the big uh, winning bet on, on the uh, subprime mortgage market, how did that work? Well, basically, Paulson uh, was able to identify and predict the housing bubble bursting. And so he purchased something called credit default swaps, which is kind of like shorting the housing market. So prior to these instruments being available, there was no way to do that. And it was a highly contrarian bet to make because everyone prior to that time mostly believed that real estate was a fairly safe asset. There were a lot of subprime mortgages being sold and banks were getting in on many of the trades. So there was a lot of collusion on Wall Street. No one really understood who was a counterparty and what the risk could entail if the entire system fell apart. So Paulson was able to identify that through his fund's research and made very heavy bets in credit default swaps and ended up netting $15 billion on the subprime trade. He was also one of the first, interestingly enough, to start to go long on housing in about two, in 2009, way earlier than the rest of the street. So up until about 2011, Paulson was doing extremely well. Things have obviously changed. So subprime mortgages, like other mortgages, are bundled into securities that are kind of like bonds. Correct. And the credit default swaps are sort of an insurance policy that pays off if the security falls in value, and that's Correct. what he was betting on. And I guess also using a lot of leverage, borrowing a lot of money so that his wins were amplified. Definitely. Now, his genius seems to have been that uh, he spotted something that other people didn't spot, that the, there was a bubble that was going to burst. On the other hand, it wasn't a total secret. Everybody knew that housing prices had been going up faster than wages, which clearly can't happen forever. What do you think it was about his approach that allowed him to take that gamble when other people were all getting a little bit nervous about what was right. going on with the housing market. So there are always economists that predict market activity in the economy. And there are a lot of analysts on Wall Street that would agree with what you said. I think the main difference was that he was seeing a high inflow of assets and he was able to convince a, a couple of other friends on Wall Street and counterparties to help him get the assets to make the trade in a very big way. He was willing to bet the farm as they say on this one trade. And very few people, very few others had the assets and the liquidity to be able to do that at that time or had, you know, were willing to take that risk. It takes a lot of nerve to it do does. it. It does, yeah. 
And one of the things I, I, I noticed in reading the book is that Paulson, for example, he really started hustling very young. I think he was selling candy at school at right. one point and <laughs> trading in stocks when he was still a teenager. And, uh, and you get a, a lot of little uh, stories like that throughout the book of people who just really uh, work very hard. Uh, seem to be very smart, ahead of the game usually in school. Uh, not all, always though. I was right. wondering, what, what it, were, there, were there individuals you interviewed who really surprised you, that just didn't seem like the sort of master of the universe stereotype that we think of? Right. Well, I think that that's a very interesting question. And I would say that there were a couple of very key examples uh, of situations across the board that surprised me. I was interested to know, I, I, we've been, I've been covering hedge funds for the past couple of years, and we as an industry talk about the latest trades going on with these managers, and that's our job. But going back to their history, I was, I was fascinated to find out that the majority of these billionaire money managers all started out with very humble beginnings. And if you're looking for a corollary, and I myself started out with very humble beginnings, I know that that's a motivator to succeed. So it was interesting to see the stories of them hustling from a very young age. The other interesting thing that I noticed is that they continued hustling. It didn't at one at the point where they were all multimillionaires, they didn't stop. I spoke to one hedge fund manager, Bill Ackman, and I said, what motivates you to continue to outperform year and year again? And he said, well, every year I start again from zero. Investors look at every year as on a singular level, and it was interesting to know that you can have 10, 15 years of good performance, but investors don't care, even though they may be committed for two to three years at a time. Uh, the hedge fund industry is looked at month to month and then on a year-to-year -year basis. So uh, a lot of these managers constantly feel the pressure in their small community to outdo each other and to continue to outdo themselves. So it's really the same process you see with, you know, great athletes like right. Roger Federer, you could ask, well, why do you do it? You're rich, you've won all these titles, why bother? They're still just very competitive and they love the game. Right, and I don't think that it's about the money. I think that it's a rewarding experience for them. I did notice uh, their personalities are, are they're very, uh, they're very strong personalities, as you would expect, and that wasn't so much of a surprise, but they're willing to take big risks, even and, and bet large portions of the fund's capital to single trades, including, again, I would mention Bill Ackman, just getting a 1% stake in Procter & Gamble, it's a $1. billion position. His fund is only about $10 billion. So relative to the size of his fund, that's a huge position to take on one bet. So these managers all have a very strong conviction in their analysis, and I noticed that they were able to take the emotion out of the investing process, which they all cited as highly, highly important and key, and that actually helped them to be able to pare back on positions because they all do 
I have at one point made big mistakes. I also noticed that many of the managers had several scenarios where they almost risked losing the fund on a single bet. And they learned from those mistakes earlier in their career, or and some had to just close their fund and start again. And they called on that in the recent financial crisis. And because of that, most of them were very profitable during that time. So they're very intellectually curious as well. One of the things that comes through in, in, in a lot of the quotes is that, that they really just love detecting some new truth or what they believe right. may be some new insight that they don't think anyone else has. And that seems to drive them forward. Right. Now, um, when you look at the kind of educations they've got, that seemed to also wander sort of over the lot. A lot of them do have, have a kind of a nath- mathematical skill, it seems like, an analytical skill. But are there any common denominators in the kind of education that seem to lead to success or be key or necessary to success in this industry? Well, I would say I would be about 50-50. There were some people that had the education of actually just investing from a very young age, taking bets on themselves. People like David Tepper, who went to Carnegie Mellon and before that to the University of Pittsburgh. And he never really had really good grades in school. He was a C or D student. He would skip class to go hang out with the nuns across the street, even though he was Jewish, because they had free pancakes. So I would say that about half of them really excelled at school, and folks like Ray Dalio as well never really adjusted to the school environment, didn't really excel until a bit later in life. So once they were able to focus in on what they like to do and you're motivated by something you enjoy, you tend to devote a lot of energy and become really good at that skill. I would say folks like David Einhorn, uh, did he did go to Cornell, but he doesn't have an MBA or a C. And I personally asked him if that's something that he thinks that uh, people who want to emulate him should try to achieve. And he said, no, the best education is actually just being a very diligent investor and studying your investments and the companies and balance sheets and financial statements and learning that way. So I wouldn't necessarily say that getting an MBA from Harvard or Wharton guarantees you to be a great investor. But being intellectually curious and working hard and studying constantly, always learning, that was another thing that comes through. These guys are always learning and looking for the next insight. They're into their 50s and 60s, and they're constantly looking for ways to do their job better, even if it means risking having investors pull out of the fund. People like Ray Dalio, he was at one point over $160 billion, and today he's at 120. He's still the world's largest hedge fund manager. But when he was at $160 billion, he figured out a way to manage risk better. And many investors didn't want to conform to that way. It was his pure alpha strategy. They didn't want change. And he he basically said, that's too bad. If you want to stay in the fund, we're changing how we do things. He went all the way down to $90 billion, lost about $70 billion of investors' money, but now has been a model for the industry and outperformed over the last couple of years and has uh, people dying to get back into the fund. Uh, I also noticed that uh, almost all of your subjects, I think, except for one, were men. And I I think the public has this view that this is sort of a men's club, a male-dominated industry. Is that true and is that changing? 
Well, I would say that there needs to be more women in senior roles across the workforce. And in Wall Street, I would say that we are seeing a lot more you know, successful female investors, but I was looking for the top performers right now who had been managing large sums of money for over 10 years. And on that scale, Sonia Gardner was definitely in that realm. Uh, are there other great female investors? Will there in the next five years hopefully be women that are alpha masters? I would hope so. I would say definitely. I do see more women entering into the hedge fund industry and Wall Street in general. Uh, but I think overall, it's still an uphill battle for women across the workforce to get into senior positions. And in terms of strategy and, and, and investing styles, I know they vary radically, but I wonder if, if from your research you see any trends over the last decade or so that they're, they're emphasizing different types of things than they used to. And, and is that just due to the opportunities that are available or is it due to an advance in their thinking? Well, there's two different things that I'm noticing right now. Number one would be that I'm seeing a lot of pension funds and endowments and uh, get interested in the activist investing space. Uh, also, sovereign wealth funds, but there's less information publicly available about them because they choose to stay behind the curtain, so to speak. Pension funds and endowments, too. But on the long term, we're trying to find alpha in this market, seeing a lot of institutions, institutional investors get interested in the activist space. Number two, I'm seeing that a lot of managers and at least the I would say the top 10% are using credit default swaps not just as a way to get higher returns but to manage risk. So I would say that I would predict that it would it should become a more standard practice across the industry. I was actually just in class yesterday with one professor that cited that uh, that observation as well. Now, the industry certainly has its critics. Uh, all the alternate investment uh, field does, including the, 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 the private equity funds and other forms of funds. And, and one of the criti criticisms is that a lot of this is not creating anything or making anything. They're not starting a new car company and, and hiring thousands of people to do it. They have their own employees. But a lot of these bets are sort of zero-sum games. A credit right. default swaps, you make money, but somebody else lost it. For society as a whole, there's not really any change. And I'm wondering whether you have a sense of, of whether their role in society is it a positive role or negative, as, as some critics claim. You know, what is the social benefit of having it? What if the hedge fund industry were to disappear overnight? Is there any reason why those of us who are not investors or employees would care? Sure. Well, I think that that's, again, a very interesting question. And I would say that hedge funds, most retail investors aren't really aware, but hedge funds really do a great part to make the markets way more efficient for the basic reason that they're willing to take risks that many other investors aren't. And so they're very often the counterparties to banks on transactions that have become the norm on Wall Street. Now, one could argue that Wall Street itself is a zero-sum game. And part of the problem with the financial crisis was that the banks were behaving like hedge funds when they had a fiduciary responsibility to their depositors and investors and clients to behave like a bank. So um, I would say that when people and institutions and organizations do what 
the government wants them to do and has said is legal for them to do, then they're doing their per part to provide efficiency to the markets. Now, on a second note, retail investors actually do benefit from hedge funds, even if they're not directly invested. Many hedge fund managers, or many of the managers profiled in my book, I should correct, had a big part in unveiling frauds. These short sellers, like Jim Chanos, was the one behind uncovering Enron, WorldCom, and Tyco. Now, they choose to speak to journalists when the time is appropriate and we follow the normal protocols to be able to bring this fraud and these accounting frauds to the market. And I know for a fact that they are trying to have a more active discussion to work with the SEC so that instead of being more reactive, we can be more proactive. Number two, I do think that um, activist investors specifically, although it's 50-50, in many cases, there's an upside with when an activist makes a big change in a company like JCPenney, as Bill Ackman has committed to doing, and all the improvements that are expected to come through in the next year or two makes a shopping experience a better experience. The same can be said to Burger King. Um, and also companies like Target. There are some examples of successes and some examples of failures, of course. But again, to draw uh, back to Bill Ackman with General Growth Partners, he saw over a 200% return on that investment. And I know for a fact, and I had heard at investment conferences, that other retail investors got in on that trade right after it got back into the market and became millionaires, just riding out what these hedge fund managers were doing on the long side. I think the public has a hard time understanding processes like short selling and the right. sort of things that sound like a betting on disaster. Right. But in fact, they're providing insight that uh, is just as useful as the insight for those who are betting on the upside. Right. So eventually, you know, some frauds come to light and some don't. But many investors and stockholders lost their entire net worth by being invested in companies like Enron. So it's better to bring that to the market rather than risk the general public losing their life savings. So short sellers, you always, you know, everyone has a motive for everything that they do. And short sellers are no different. They're investing on the market on the downside. When a CEO comes on uh, a business news channel to talk about their company, they're trying to push the stock up and have a vested interest in doing so on the long side. Every time anyone speaks publicly about a company, there's a, an interest for why they're doing so, unless you're a journalist like us. Now, before we finish, I want you to take out your crystal ball and say, what do you think will happen with this industry in the next, say, five or 10 years? Is it going to grow? Has it reached a sort of saturation point, or uh, will it shrink? What do you think? Well, I'd say it's a, it's a tipping point for the hedge fund industry right now. You're seeing a lot of uh, legends in the hedge fund industry retire, like Louis Bacon, Stanley Druckenmiller, Carl Icahn, turning into family offices and basically shuttering their doors for investors inciting difficult market environments. So I think investing today is definitely much harder than it was 20 years ago. You can't really be the value investor just the sole value investor that you were back then following the Buffett model because you basically need to have a minor or degree in economics and understand how 
different economies in the world are infecting are affecting our markets here in the U.S. I would say things are more interconnected than ever before, and that's making a lot of the older, legendary hedge fund managers retire, and it's also making a lot of the startup funds close their doors as well. People who thought that they can be like a David Tepper or a Dan Loeb, deciding to go out on their own, raising money, and after a year or two, very preemptively, just shutting their doors. So I feel like the industry is getting more and more competitive. I would say it definitely is. And it's it breeds more competition as we're seeing across Wall Street. So I wouldn't say that I see the hedge fund industry expanding, but I would say I would probably see it evolving into a, a better oiled machine. And uh, lastly, uh, you're in a sort of unique position having having gotten exposed to some of these things at a very young age. And we have certainly students at Wharton. And we also have at Knowledge at Wharton uh, some products for high school students. So I'm wondering what advice you'd give somebody who is just intrigued about this business and would like to get into it, but still has years of education ahead of them. What should they be thinking about doing? Well, I would say one of the most important things to do is to try to get an internship during your summer break. Or if you're based in New York, try to get a year-round position, because that will give you hands-on experience, even at a low level. The first few days I was at Citigroup, I was filing papers. And by proving your commitment, there's there's no shortcut to hard work. It's a long process to build up a reputation. And I think just knowing that there are certain steps that you need to take to be patient, to be hardworking, and to be aggressive in a respectful way about seeking out those positions is highly important. I would contact alumni of, you know, Wharton alumni are very prominent on Wall Street, as are um, from other business schools. I would try to get a day where you could shadow them in the office. And I would think about connections as, as similar to Google Plus or other social networks. You have your friends, acquaintances, professors, family, professional associates, and look into your network and see who might be connected to a manager that you would like to try to emulate, that you would just like to try to meet. Another important suggestion that I would make is to try to attend industry conferences. For students, many of those conferences are free, um, and you get higher visibility because you're embraced uh, within the finance industry. Coming from a prominent school like Wharton, I know Wharton is planning to have its own investment conference in New York City in the winter, and I would definitely suggest that students try to take advantage of that. Well, that's great advice, and uh, you have a long career ahead of you. We'll be watching it, and congratulations about your book. It's a very good read. I can recommend it, and we'll hope to see you again. Thank you so much. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.